Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, imagine if China used its power to cut off international trade to the United States, including for things like medical equipment, because they didn't like Joe Biden and hoped that if enough Americans were made miserable, they would rise up against him and install a leader China thought would better serve their interests. How would you think about Chinese media that said, well, we heard a lot of Americans say they were unhappy. They even marched in the street. Obviously, that was a call for foreign intervention from a country that understands democracy better than they do. And then what if some Chinese people said, well, wait, you can't immiserate ordinary Americans to push them to overthrow their government. That's illegal and immoral. And then other Chinese people explained, you don't get it. U.S. politics are very complicated. We'll talk about the admitted complexities of the hardships facing Cubans and the relatively uncomplicated actions the U.S. could take to stop contributing to those hardships with James Early, board member at the Institute for Policy Studies and former assistant secretary for education and public service at the Smithsonian Institution. Also on the show, David Cooper, senior research analyst at the Economic Policy Institute, joins us to parse the we all quit phenomenon, currently coursing through the U.S. wage labor force and through U.S. economic news media. Does media's narrative really match what's going on? You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. In the wake of Black Lives Matter and George Floyd protests, lawmakers in Florida, as elsewhere, passed legislation increasing penalties for blocking public streets and offering protection to people who hit protesters with their car. But when people took to the street to show support for anti-government demonstrations in Cuba, the Florida Highway Patrol allowed them to block an expressway in both directions for nine hours, and the Miami police chief marched alongside them. Anti-government demonstrations in Cuba have received a good deal of glorifying U.S. media attention, in contrast to other, larger movements elsewhere in Latin America. The truth is neither U.S. governments nor corporate media make much pretense of projecting a single standard when it comes to official enemies. And Cuba has been high on that list for 60 years. So little do the rules apply, multiple U.S. outlets from the New York Times to the Today Show illustrated stories on Cuba's anti-government protests with photos of huge crowds at a pro-government rally. CNN illustrated an article headlined Cubans Take to the Streets with a photo of a rally in Miami. Accuracy? Who cares? This is Cuba we're talking about. James Early has been writing about Cuba and U.S.-Cuba policy for many years now, currently a board member at the Institute for Policy Studies. He's the former assistant secretary for education and public service at the Smithsonian Institution. He joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, James Early. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you. Well, the fog around Cuba is so dense and of such long standing that it can be hard to get a sense of what is even happening, much less why it's happening. 
What would you say are the primary factors driving the anti-government protests that we saw in Cuba this past month? Well, the primary factors are both historical dating back to 1898 when the U.S. invaded Cuba, took over Cuba after forcing its secession from Spain and uh, actually invading Cuba on a number of occasions. And so over the course of 60-some-odd years, up until 1959, the U.S., in direct and indirect ways, uh, dominated the sovereignty and independence and self-determination of Cuba, in alliance with some of its own elites, turning it into a playground for casinos and gambling and prostitution and the addition of U.S. racism with the historical racism of colonial Cuba, as is the case across the Americas. That's one deep historical factor. Sixty-some years later, in 1959, with the Cuban Revolution, it was the first time that Cuba took full control of its sovereignty and independence and its own determination of how it wanted to direct its economy and its governance system which was reinforced in 2019 with a new uh, constitution endorsing 70-some-odd percentage of Cubans endorsing Cuba as a socialist republic. Keeping in mind that since 1959, starting with President Eisenhower, with CIA report, people can simply go online and find this, don't take my word for it, in which a document was sent on March 1960 to President Eisenhower, about the potential for invading Cuba and stopping it from having its sovereignty and independence and self-determination. And many noted and acknowledged attempts at the assassination of Fidel Castro when he was alive over many years, uh, the coddling of terrorists in the bedrock of American terrorism in the Americas, which is Miami, Florida, with right-wing Cubans, right-wing Venezuelans, right-wing Colombians, right-wing Brazilians, et cetera who have been coddled by the U.S. state, some of them known terrorists, having bombed planes, killing Cuban citizens, citizens from Barbados and other areas of the Americas. So that set the context of not wanting to allow Cuba to be independent and sovereign and self-determination and certainly not socialist. Let's, we should be very clear on that, whether it has been a Democratic or a Republican administration. The current situation is exacerbated by an economic warfare since the 1960s, designed to starve the Cuban people in rebellion against their own government. And that is not to suggest that all of the Cuban people are in agreement with the ideological and political and economic direction of Cuba. It would be surprising if such was the case of unanimity in any country. But it is a minority of people whose voices are not unimportant, who want the restoration of capitalism and the overthrow of Cuban socialism. Those are factual matters. That is further exacerbated by the global pandemic, which has engulfed all countries and impacted negatively all economies, and particularly the economies of underdeveloped countries and underdeveloped communities in developed countries, as we are witnessing here in the U.S. with regard to people of color, women, LGBTQT, particularly in the service industry and in the healthcare industry, which has had a racialized and class impact. And then the third factor is Cuba's own errors and failures, unquote, I'm using terms that President Díaz-Canaz Bermúdez, present president of Cuba, has used. I've met with him on two occasions over the last four years, and I read on Cuba Daily, in which the Cubans are going back, notably, to the presidency of Raul Castro, who was nominated and elected by the National Assembly of Cuba, not simply because he was Fidel Castro's brother, 
who have pointed out the issues of inefficiency in their own economic plan, of corruption, repeated chorus on the part of the past Cuban president and the current Cuban president, and the need to make their economic adjustments, which they adopted in the last few years, work because they have not worked. And so those three factors, including that historical backdrop, uh, bring us to this present crisis moment in Cuba. That context then is juxtaposed against the community of nations, 184 voting at the United Nations in the last few months against two in opposition, the United States and Israel, to dismantle the economic blockade and sanctions. And these are majority capitalist countries, but who uphold the international protocols accumulated over the course, what, 1947 or so of the United Nations, of how nations should handle their mutual interests as well as their sharp ideological, political, and economic conflicts in respect and peace, not in becoming a rogue nation as the United States is now in the face of the global community. And recently, re-emphasized with President Obrador of Mexico, really confronting this blockade and sending tons of food into Cuba, as is the case with Bolivia and Uruguay. And of course, Russia and China have also done the same. So this is the context, I think, for looking inside Cuba and listening to the voices, the range of critical reflective voices of how they're debating their nation and how they're handling and attempting to resolve within their nation their own concerns in the context of what they've advanced since 1959. Well, yeah, U.S. media coverage of Cuba is so cartoonish and so binary that to say that the U.S. should not be imposing punitive sanctions, a blockade which, as you say, folks can look up, the purpose of which is to immiserate Cuba's people in order to bring about, this is the language of a memo, to bring about hunger, desperation, and overthrow of government. So sometimes the cruelty is the point, sounds like poetic, but it's this is really what we're talking about here. But the coverage is so binary that if you want to say that the U.S. shouldn't be imposing a punitive blockade, that the U.S. has no right certainly to militarily intervene, that's somehow painted as a blanket apology or endorsement of the Cuban government. I guess you think they're perfect then, and there's sort of no place to stand because the story has been made so simplistic. And I guess I would just add that media present the Cuban people as, you know, if they aren't the freedom fighters who love the USA, well, then they're mindless and miserable sheep, which seems to sort of set the ground to say things are so terrible and benighted there that anything the U.S. does should be welcomed. It's a kind of a dehumanization, really, of the Cuban people. Well, the U.S. media is, particularly the liberal media, is to be called to task for its fake news its readiness to adopt the propaganda from the Cold War and to assume that U.S. democracy, U.S. virtues should be imposed on the entire world. It is a failure to do basic 101 journalism, to repeat these propaganda standards that the U.S. has been repeating over 60-some years. It is a failure to do serious investigative journalism about the range of patriotic voices, most of whom are not socialists or communists in Cuba, but who are patriots, who don't want outside interference, who acknowledge the inefficiencies and the errors of their own government, but who also want this blockade down. It is amazing that MSNBC, National Public Radio, uh, Washington Post, and 
so on who profess to be liberal and to have high ideals are so shoddy in their own profession, so biased in their own profession, and would repeat what the Trump administration has been doing, as has been the case of the Biden-Harris administration, who has betrayed their campaign commitments to return to the accord between then-President Barack Obama and President Raul Castro. This was not Barack Obama, quote-unquote, opening up Cuba. This came out of negotiations of a bilateral agreement, which is the standard protocol of nations, even those who have vehement disagreements with one another. And for the so-called mainstream liberal media to fall into such shoddiness in their profession, we must call them accountable. Of course, we can see that with the case of apartheid Israel or with the failure to look at the seven, eight military bases in Colombia and the daily killings of trade unionists and Afro-descendants and the taking of land and the billions of dollars that both Democrats and Republicans have put into that. So we have a crisis of morality, a crisis of professionalism inside the U.S. And we should ask ourselves, who are we to be the moral barometer of the world, given our own internal contradiction? That is not to say that one should not have a critical approach to what is going on in Cuba. We are a globally connected world, and therein we have rights and responsibilities both as citizens of this nation, but also of our extension and engagement with citizens around the world. So we have every right to make evaluations, but we have no right to break the protocols of nations and to interfere into the sovereignty and self-determination of other nations. This is a context that seems to escape millions of both Democrats and Republicans who so quickly buy in to a U.S. chauvinism, a U.S. imperial kind of might. And we're seeing, again, that this is being confronted. We see recently now the president of Mexico has called for the dissolution of the Organization of American States as a, quote, lackey, unquote, of U.S. interference in this hemisphere. And so even allies of the United States in a certain manner here in the Americas are calling into question the moral and legal grounding of the policies of the U.S. And we as citizens, whatever our ideological and political perspective is in the United States, should stand forth and try to reintegrate ourselves into the community of nations and then carry on our disagreements and our agreements within that context. Well, what finally, to your mind, would real solidarity with Cuba's people look like right now? Well, real solidarity with the Cuban people first comes from recognition that the Cuban government are the daughters and sons of everyday households in Cuba, starting number one, so that we don't have this false division between, quote unquote, the abstract people and the abstract government. Specifically, we should dismantle the U.S. government legislation called the embargo on this side and called the blockade from the Cuban side. It violates international law. It violates any principles of humanity. We should also abandon sanctions. We should call for the freedom of U.S. citizens to free travel, to go and see Cuba for themselves, and to have their own interactions. We are denied that opportunity. We should recognize the potential contributions to Cuba to our own development. They have two existing and three pending vaccines, which are effective to this pandemic. And even developed countries around the world are calling on them for assistance, even as they disagree with the Cubans ideologically and politically. And the U.S. could benefit from that. In fact, the U.S. is benefiting from that. Your audience perhaps does not know. Now, for several years, there's been an agreement with a Boston country. This is a legal agreement on one of the three or so preventive cancer drugs that Cuba has produced. It has a 
outstanding biotechnology development. Now, there are other issues in Cuba that we also need to look at and listen to the voices about expanded democracy. There is a big debate in Cuba about democracy in the context of its socialism. Democracy and capitalism do not equate. Democracy and socialism do not equate to the same thing. It is people-centered, the demos, as the Greeks pointed out, ordinary people, the quasher, the power of ordinary people. So citizen voices are critical to development of these governance outlooks. But those are the specific things that we should take on is this embargo, the sanctions, and we should return Guantanamo to the full authority of the Cuban people and their government. Guantanamo has been a site of horrendous human rights violations of the highest order that we should not forget has been an admission by both Democrats and Republicans in this country. So that's the context of not just solidarity, but of basic citizenship in an international community. Well, we've been speaking with James Early, board member at the Institute for Policy Studies. James Early, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. And thanks to you and your listening audience. We All Quit, a very good motherboard story about fast food, retail, and hospitality workers resigning from their jobs, nevertheless began by telling readers that they may have seen photos of it go viral or may have even experienced it in real life if you've dined at a Chili's or Applebee's and the hostess apologizes for the extra-long wait times. A source in the New York Times explains that it's not about the wages of college grads going up. It's about the wages of lifeguards at my pool. The fact that news media often assume that their readers will have only experienced a shift in the waged labor force as consumers of food or news or swimming pools, but not as workers tells you a lot about the perspective from which this and many another economic phenomenon is being reported. If reporting on the workforce-centered workers, we might get less of the approach reflected in a PR pitch I received just this morning for a guest for this show. Quote, with more and more companies offering big perks to attract and retain workers, a big question to ask is how many companies, big or small, expect or plan to grow if they have to spend a lot of money on bonuses or other incentives just to keep a manageable workforce? Close quote. Joining us with a different angle is David Cooper, senior economic analyst at the Economic Policy Institute and deputy director of EARN, the Economic Analysis and Research Network, a national network of state-level policy research and advocacy organizations. He joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, David Cooper. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, it sure seems like something important is afoot, but we know media sometimes make a wave out of a ripple and a sea change out of a seasonal shift, depending on the needs of the news cycle. So let me just ask you first, what do you see actually happening in terms of workers leaving jobs or not returning to jobs? What observably is going on? Yeah, I think it's really important to keep in mind right out of the bat that we're in a very unique moment in the economy in the sense that parts of the economy have essentially shifted from zero to 100 almost overnight. 
a lot of these businesses that are complaining about their inability to hire workers have seen demand just surge. I mean, we're talking restaurants that were closed for months that are reopening and suddenly having lots of customers coming through the door. Even under normal circumstances, setting aside these other factors that might be affecting people's job decisions, it's always going to take time for employers to staff up under those circumstances to try and rebuild their workforce when many of them cut the vast majority of their staffs early in the pandemic last year. So some of this rhetoric, I think, is being overblown just because of the uniqueness of the circumstances. Well, it's funny how corporate media, in terms of understanding things like this, often evoke a kind of textbook supply and demand economic theory that presumes a power seesaw between labor and management. But then when labor looks like actually getting more leverage, that's suddenly weird and aberrational. You know, employers' decisions, yes, we'll take that subsidy and no, we won't create jobs, you know. Yes, we'll say we're forced to lay off workers because of costs, but at the same time, we'll give huge bonuses to our executives. Those kinds of decisions in media's lens are fundamentally unremarkable. They're just kind of market logic at work. But then at a time like now, when workers seem to be choosing, it becomes like a psychological issue. What did the pandemic do to their brains, you know? And it it sort of suggests that media's frequent and often implicit reference to a market economics that maintains a balance of power between workers and owners, that's not really the framework that we're working with. Are media at least moving past the idea that this is about people not wanting to work? But what does this say about the sort of general understanding that corporate media offer in terms of the way power plays out in the workplace? I think you've hit on a really important point, and that is that there is this assumption that is baked into our theories of the economy that workers and employers have equal bargaining power, that if an employee doesn't like their job, they can just instantly go out and find another one without suffering any consequences, that if if they think their pay is too low, all they have to do is just go and look around a little bit, and they can immediately go and find another one, and employers can just immediately react and raise their pay. And and obviously, the world is far more complicated than that. And there is always a fundamental imbalance in the bargaining power of employers and employees. And, and when you're talking about particular portions of the labor market, like low-wage workers, the imbalance in power is even more pronounced. And what we're seeing right now coming out of the pandemic is a lot of people got to see that when government stepped in when lawmakers chose to act and gave them more generous, more accessible unemployment insurance, gave them some breathing room to find suitable jobs, not just the first one available. When we give workers the ability to take time off to care for themselves or a family member who got sick, when some states set tougher rules on workplace safety, when some employers, at least for a little while, adopted hazard pay, to acknowledge the additional workloads that these frontline jobs were taking on, you know, workers got to see that there is an alternative, that when they have some of this backing of government and policy, they are given a little more leverage, and that might allow them to exert a little more pressure to actually expect more from their employer or to go out and and look for a job that's more suitable for their circumstances, which I think, unfortunately, for most of the last 40 years, corporate interests and policymakers, either through acts of commission or acts of omission, 
have largely undercut workers' bargaining power. They've just handed more leverage over to employers in pretty much every way possible. Well, I think sources matter a lot. You know, who gets to speak in these articles and who gets to offer their analysis or understanding of of what's going on? I think maybe the tenor is shifting a bit away from the idea that people don't want to work or people are lazy or somehow they're living high on the hog off these right. unemployment checks, which I, I don't know who you'd have to be to imagine that $1,000 or $1,200 is like suddenly making a person pick a different way in life. But in terms of media, are there things you'd like to see reporters who are covering this workforce issue do more of or less of or people they could listen to more or maybe listen to less? What's, What's your sense of how media might illustrate this issue more accurately or usefully to folks? I think that talking to the workers who have stepped away from the workforce right now, who maybe haven't returned to jobs, and ask them, what is it that they want to get out of work? Because it's more than just pay. I think that's one of the other realizations that folks are having right now, that some employers are raising wages, and that's great. It needs to happen. Jobs shouldn't be paying poverty-level wages. But it's more than that. It's things like the availability to take time off to care for a loved one that's sick, flexibility in scheduling to accommodate childcare responsibilities. What are the working conditions like? Will they have to police mask wearing or social distancing? How supportive will employers be if they come into conflict with customers? What's the potential for advancement? Do folks view these jobs as potential stepping stones in a career, or is it just a one-off? And another thing that's important right now, I think, is workers are understandably questioning the future of particular employers or industries. I mean, so many businesses have suffered and gone under in this pandemic. I think it's not unreasonable for prospective employee to be considering, well, do I really think this job's going to be around six months from now? Is it worth going into this employer not knowing what the future is going to hold for them? And I also think it's important for media to be considering what workers will get out of a particular business's success. What are businesses doing to bring employees into the success of the business? Is it just going to be longer hours and more work, or are they going to get to share in some of the profits and benefits that come from that business's success? I think employees, workers, are are scrutinizing these questions a lot more carefully now because they've gone through this trauma where they've come to realize that, you know, in many cases, there are things that are not worth a minimum wage job. Well, I'm going to end you there and pick you up in the future on this important set of issues. We've been speaking with David Cooper. He's Senior Economic Analyst at the Economic Policy Institute and Deputy Director of EARN, the Economic Analysis and Research Network. You can find work online at epi.org. Thank you so much, David Cooper, for joining us this week on Counterspin. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. For more information, you can check out our website, fair.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Jadine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.